0: Let yourself be imperfect online because our filters have become so finely tuned to inauthentic kinds of approaches, especially from brands. And so my advice to the brands we work with is always, hey, we're not gonna be perfect, and that's a hard thing to do, but it can actually be really successful. Welcome to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into the before and
1: after some of the world's most effective transformation processes. I'm your host, Paul French. Many have said content is king, and as companies seek better engagement and ROI for their marketing efforts, they've got to look at their content differently. Content marketing isn't just about demand generation. It should engage, excite, educate, and inspire audiences, which in turn enables brands to reach and convert new customers. This episode of Transform It Forward, we talked to Michael Brenner, CEO at Marketing Insider Group. Michael's a globally recognized keynote speaker on leadership, culture, and marketing, and the author of several best-selling books. He helps companies attract and win new customers through strategic content that cuts through the clutter in this online world today. We had a great talk about the changing nature of customer engagement, a more complete view of the buyer's journey, and how to create innovative long-tail SEO strategies. Michael, thank you for joining me on Transformer Forward.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: You obviously saw a particular need in the market as a former CMO that that took you down the path that you're on from uh, entrepreneur and author and and the like how did you how did you find yourself that
0: direction yeah i think the market spoke to me you know and i i wish i could give myself credit to uh you know that i saw it you know i had the foresight to uh to move in a certain direction but no i just i think that there's a common misperception that businesses need to promote and sell uh hard what they do and and the solutions they solve for and uh what I found was the success happens when you sort of relax a little bit and listen to the needs and you know, create relationships and help and educate with the kinds of programs that you put in place. And, and so we call that content marketing in the marketing world, but it's really just it's true for selling. It's true for business overall. I think growth happens to the companies that just try to truly help the audiences that they serve. And so that's really the position that that I found myself in and the path that I wanted to follow.
1: And so it's probably the most important thing because it's a, a clear reflection to consumer behavior and the changing nature of information availability and the changing nature of information access. So, as the consumer behavior has been changing since we all got the internet in our pockets, how have you seen it accelerate just over the course of the last couple of years with regard to the pandemic and the like?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been saying now for a year and a half that all the things that were here and changing and transforming before the pandemic were here before, they're just, they're definitely accelerating, you know, like I thought working from home was a great idea 20 years ago and I wasn't alone. And, and I always wondered why, when I have a, you know, the sniffles and I know I need an antibiotic because my, you know, ears ringing that I can't just call the doctor and tell him to phone me in an antibiotic, you know, or whatever the telemedicine case may be. I think digital transformation, you know, all of those things were there. We were talking about cloud computing and digital transformation five years ago But then, you know, the pandemic hit and all of those things. And in a way, you could say that they're all related to digital transformation. They all just became more obvious and more important and more urgent. And so that's, you know, really why I think if there's any silver lining to what's happening in the, you know, in the course of the world events, I think that transformation was was a good thing because I think it's going to put us on a on a footing to grow and expand into the in the right directions.
1: So you mentioned a couple of my favorite, right? Telemedicine is a is a perfect example of how maybe the the walls come down just a little bit and there's lots and lots of good B2C examples. What have you seen on the B2B side of things where that consumer behavior has changed in a way that has maybe overall changed the buying process or overall changed the customer expectation?
0: Yeah, I mean there's there's sort of a there's a B2B to C example I'm thinking of. We've have, we have a client that does contact centers. And so they sell contact center software and it was always, uh, it always enabled a remote workforce, but then they became, I think they were actually one of the fastest growing companies in, in during the pandemic because of it. And what we were helping them to do was very simply to educate their audience on the ability to kind of mask the remote nature of a worker. They almost wanted them to sound like they were calling from a call center, even though they were sitting in their, you know, in their pajamas in their, in their living room with a dog.
1: The irony of the old days trying to eliminate the fact that it was a call exactly. center, that, that yeah. feeling, right? They were piping in dogs and now they're piping in call centers.
0: That's right. It's it's just, it's ironic. But, you know, so, and there's a couple stats, you know, we, we saw search traffic double in 2020. Why, why did that happen? Because we're sitting at our computers, you know, we're not sitting in traffic or doing other things, you know, taking our kids to soccer practice. In the B2B world, the stat that I love the most is from McKinsey that said that, the The importance of digital interactions is six to seven times greater in both some digital transformation studies that they've done as well as in actual primary research that they conducted that they're seeing significantly more is significantly more um, weight being put on the kinds of things that we're doing digitally versus a, you know talking to a salesperson, which is a classic b two b. You know, hey, let's uh let's take them to go see Tiger Woods Swinger golf club or let's go to a concert or a sporting event or you know, steak dinner. You know, classic salesperson approaches were now, hey, what website content do you have? And can you do a webinar and let's get on a Zoom or whatever? So, you know, those interactions that salespeople do, a very classic B2B function, almost exclusively went online.
1: And it's uh it's a great point. I mean, he- You can look at how Best Buy reacted to that, where they looked at the showrooming concept where people would be pulling out their phones and they embraced it, right? And they coached people and taught people how to engage at that level. And if you look at their website, they're they're very thoughtful on how they might want to compare themselves to some other places where you might be able to get, you know, a a price-based decision. What are the best brands doing to react to that level of expected digital engagement?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it. Well, there's two things that I think are really interesting. One is it forced brands to think about the best brands to really think about how to engage folks digitally, and and in a lot of ways that became like a visual sort of medium, video, uh, you know, any kind of experiential, you know, interactive kind of a, of an experience, even to the point that you brought a Best Buy, like you know, just demonstrating a technology in a video with a real person, you know, not an actor, you know, not in a, in a studio setting, like, you know, in a living room with a, with a flashlight, you know, or something, you know, a selfie camera. I think it it forced brands to really think about how do they take the kinds of interactions that they had one-on-one in person and visually recreate those. And then what happened and what I think is really interesting is there's a lot of great success stories of brands that did this, where they found that they were able to reach, they were able to engage a significantly more, you know, higher number of people because they took something that was a one-on-one interaction and they made it available to many people because they thought through what does that look like and how do how do we make that feel like it's a personal interaction. So I, I think that those two sides of that same coin are really interesting. One, the strategy around creating visual engaging experiences digitally. And then two, the just the whole reason for digital (laughs) interactions being important is that you can reach more people, you know, became really evident and it allowed those successful companies to really double down on their success.
1: But you brought up a really great thing. And I think it's actually an interesting point for one of your earlier books. You know, the actor eliminates a level of authenticity, but when you've got an actual human using their cell phone and the production values aren't quite that great and, you know, it doesn't do exactly what they want, or at least it feels that way it feels more approachable and it feels more authentic and more empathetic. And that makes maybe that reach more effective because the authenticity is something that we all crave, uh, especially, you know, living alone in our houses for the last 18 months.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the examples I love to use is I rank, I think on the first page of Google search results for the word macrating, which uh, if you're wondering, it's not actually a word, it's a misspelling of the word marketing, which is kind of hard to spell when you, if you're a bad typist like me, and the reason I rank for it is because when I make that mistake when I'm writing articles, I leave them alone sometimes. And I, it's not, it's like, a, it's always a little bit, do I let this one go? Am I going to look like an idiot? And every once in a while, it's usually more on like a second pass through. i mean, be like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to let this this misspelled word go. But, and then I realize, oh, wait, there's actually a lot of people that mistype that word. And so, you know, I think, I think it's kind of, it's like, let yourself be imperfect online because our filters have become so finely tuned to BS and overproduced and um, inauthentic kinds of uh, approaches, especially from, from brands or politicians, you know, like, like it's just become a game that we cringe at. And so, you know, my advice to the brands we work with is always, Hey, we're not going to be perfect. And sometimes we're going to let ourselves not be perfect. And that's a hard thing to do, but it can actually be really successful.
1: And can create an entirely new podcast about effective long tail SEO strategies <laughs> exactly. of just go, going with the misspelling and grabbing it when you can. So um, that's actually really... Yeah,
0: there's got to be a subreddit out there or something for that.
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll create a separate <laughs> one for that. So it, it's an interesting thought, you know, kind of down along that same path. So what? what is, you know, the role of customer segmentation in terms of message, you know, putting the right message in front of the right people at the right time is just so critical. Have you found in your research or with your clients that that segmentation is getting even more granular or is it going the other direction where people are saying, you know, give me, give me some more thematic approaches and let me go figure it out on my own.
0: I love this question because I actually just rewrote or republished an article uh, that was a couple of years old with some newer information. And it was exactly about sort of customer segmentation in the marketing world. We call this, you know, the buyer journey, which I always found so ridiculous And so I'll I'll give you an example in my very first client strategy engagement as a, as the CEO of this company, I founded, I was sitting in a room, very, very well-known consumer brand. And they had a, I mean, it must've been more than poster size. It was like 36 by 60 poster on the wall that talked about their buyer journey. And step one, it was the buyer becomes aware of us. That is not step one. And so one of the things that is a real pet peeve of mine is this notion that the, you know, companies that we believe that we're the center of the universe. And so when we talk to, you know, brands about customer segmentation, we always talk about there's this large group of people that don't even know they have a problem yet. But there are some triggers that are going to happen to them. You know, if you're a financial company, somebody gets married or dies or wants to retire, you know, or if you're in car insurance company, you know, there's kids that are about to turn 16, right? There's some really easy things that we can use to kind of predict who's going to fall into that. I didn't know I had a problem and now I have a problem. We worked with a financial company that did the college sort of financial aid packages. And there's a form if you, if you don't have kids that age, Called the FAFSI form, or I think I think I may be misspelling that or mispronouncing it, but it's a it's a nightmare for many parents. So, so we created tons and tons of content about what do you need to start thinking about if your kids about to apply for colleges. You know, how bad is the financial aid for them? What what documents do you need to bring? The buyer journey, and and we need to think about segmenting our customer base into those they know they have a problem. Maybe they don't know they have a problem. Once they know they have a problem, what's the journey they take to finding a solution? It doesn't start with, oh, there's a company out there. It starts with, okay, what is the problem? Why is this a problem I should solve? What's the timing? Like, What's the when answer to when I should think about solving the problem? How do I go about solving this problem? All of those things happen before we identify the company that might be able to solve it you know, for us. So my, you know, my plea, uh, if I'm allowed to beg, I'm on my knees is, you know, for for anyone out there, whatever role you have in a company is to really think through the, you know, the the sort of that customer journey before they know that you're a company that might be able to, you know, solve that problem.
1: I am going to, I'm going to double down on the buyer's journey because I think you're, you're exactly right. That people look at themselves as the center of the universe, like, you know, our companies are all toddlers and there's, you know, nothing that we could do except look at ourselves. And, and, and you just described the before part of being a customer. I'm interested in your perspective on the after they've been a customer, because now as we move to to markets where it's largely subscription, it's largely recurring, uh, where you're managing churn and net retention and things like that. What is the role of managing that engagement beyond the sale?
0: You're hitting on all my my hot buttons today, Paul. So I, I'm not sure if I'm happy or, or frustrated. No, I, I love it. Yeah, it's I call it the lost child of marketing objectives of retention. And you know, there's there's you know famous studies about how you know if you spend five percent of your marketing budget on retention, it produces a ninety five percent return and all this good stuff. But it's it's easier. The the bottom line of all that research is it's it's significantly easier to keep a customer than it is to go find a new one. And so, you know, that is something that translates to the executive suite and to the board. And yet so few companies really put formal programs in place to manage that customer experience post-sale. So number one is understanding that it's significantly financially prudent to, to follow... That journey post sale and to understand the needs and wants and desires of, of a customer post-sale. Number two, what's really interesting, and this is something because it's what, you know, we, we really focus on that sort of early stage of the buyer journey. What we found, and it's so surprising, but but it makes sense when you think about it, is that early stage sort of educational content actually really helps with retention. And the reason we found that is, when I worked at SAP, we had, you know, many lines of business. And what we found was that when somebody became a customer they usually came in through one line of business through one product or solution area but then early stage content that we would serve them or or you know send to them from another product line was important and relevant because they hadn't gone through the buyer journey yet they didn't know they had a problem and so educational content actually works on both ends of this journey it works in the beginning before you know what your problem is and it works in the end when you're talking about cross sells and upsells and all those kinds of things that you know, salespeople know can really drive up, um, you know, drive up the numbers for for them and for their business. So, so yeah, so that's sort of our mission is to, to try to help people to, to think through the gaps in the buyer journey and the education that's so important from a buyer perspective, but also the tremendous amounts of ROI and business growth that it can propel when applied to the, you know, the early and the latest stages or the post-sale stage of the buyer journey.
1: Yeah, truly getting a, a complete view of that customer experience. So when you think about how much more data we now have than we did three years ago, five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, well, we we know exactly what people do, exactly where they go, exactly what they click on, exactly what they consume and they don't. How are you seeing customers use data to better inform the way they deliver that engagement throughout that entire process?
0: I think it's it's kind of like the human evolution hasn't reached the point where we're smart enough to know we should be using data. <laughs> it's, it's, there's, a, there's a mental block in, in our evolutionary journey. And, and I'll, I'll give you a stat. So Serious Decisions looked at B2B companies and found that 60 to 70% of the content created inside of those companies on average went completely unused. And so the line that I love to use is because the, the reason that that exists, that, that terrible stat exists, is because behind every bad piece of content is an executive who asked for it. Those are people that are asking us to do stuff, not because they're following the data, but because they're following their opinions. You know, we, we're we're as humans, almost by definition, we're ego driven, and we we you know we I think you know struggle to see the value in in applying data and insights to the business decisions that we make to the things we ask our team to do. And so it showed up, I think, really well in that stat, but it's just, it's also, you know, harkens back to just our human nature. Is is I think we need to learn to force almost force this sort of function of, of data and insights to drive budget planning, to drive goal setting, to drive the things that we do um, at an executive and a, and a team level to a much larger extent. Not, not 100%. I always talk about the paradox of AI. You know, is that uh, as we become more automated, the more we're going to need humans to understand sort of how do we create more authentic and more engaging kinds of content and kinds of marketing programs and business strategies. It's the same thing with just data in general. It's, it's there for us to use. It's often definitive enough to drive a better outcome, and yet we just don't use it.
1: And so flip it around, you're actually a consumer. You know, we love the idea of more personalization, but we don't want people to know about us, right? The dichotomy there. We we love perfectly delivered coupons and perfectly delivered white papers or webinar invites. But, you know, where people are freaked out, especially people who aren't in marketing are freaked out about the level of um, insights that that are generated by all those clicks that people have. What are the best brands doing to try to balance that highly personal experience with privacy and the authenticity uh, that they want to deliver as well or the expectation that that's delivered as well?
0: It's kind of funny. It's kind of like when, you, when you're at a, you know, when, we, when we're back to going to parties or, or something, you know, public event, when you meet new people, you know, what you find is the way that you get to know them better is through, oh, where are you from? Oh, well, I'm from that state too. Or I'm, you know, I spent time in that city or where'd you go to school or, you know, what interest do you have? And, and that's, I think that's true for companies as well. We, as consumers, we are, we're not just hiding, we're running away from companies that over-personalize, you know, the creep factor, but what we are willing to do is engage with, with, with brands even at, on an interest level. And so, you know, I wrote an article that personas are great except when they suck. Because, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of companies spend a lot of money trying to define who the person is they're trying to target, but they don't actually ever get to the juicy stuff, which is, well, what do those people care about? What, what interests, what hobbies, you know, can we start to engage them with? And so, you know, that that's, I think, the way to really achieve the the goal of personalization, which is to deepen a relationship and gain trust with a consumer, is to, you know, talk about the things that they love. It's why brands spend a lot of money on golf sponsorships or stadium sponsorships. Personally, I think it's a failed attempt at trying to, to, you know, meet us where we are from a passion perspective, but just, you know, trying to understand the things that we love. I, you know, another article I wrote was uh, what marketers can learn from Game of Thrones because. You know, I was super obsessed with that show when it was going on. But then I I saw this stat that said that, you know, the number one thing that marketers talk about when they talk about non-work is is you know, is the latest TV show. And at the time it was Game of Thrones. So, you know, those kinds of approaches, you know, when I say hey marketers, they're not going to listen to me. But when I say, hey, all the things marketers can learn from a thing they're really interested in, that's the way to gain and attract the kind of people that you want. It's common interests, it's the, you know, the things that make us human and the things that make us passionate about the, you know, the world that we live in. I think that's the way to achieve, you know, the goal of personalization. I'm glad you used the, you know, the sponsorship examples of the
1: brand affinity examples, because, you know, we are all confronted with the fact that you used to have somebody's attention for more than nine seconds, but that's all you get now, right? You know, between that skip button or between the 15 seconds forward on a podcast, never do that on this one, by the way. But so how, how do you balance those two? How do you build an authentic relationship nine seconds at a time? and that's really, you know, what we've really conditioned ourselves and certainly conditioned generations that are a lot younger than me to do.
0: It's a kind of a surround strategy. You know, I w- I always tell people that I don't do any real outbound marketing. We do a ton of inbound and I, you know, I speak at shows. I'm I'm talking to you on this podcast. The multi-touch attribution model for my my customer acquisition there's like you know, seventeen things, you know, I, I get a new customer and like, I saw you speak and then I heard you talk, and then I read that article and I downloaded that white paper and then I saw you talk again. and you know, so I think we need to um we need to learn that people don't see nine seconds of a commercial and say, oh, that's I need to call that company and buy their stuff we're we're I think we're making decisions with the companies that have the most authentic and the most authentically engaging touches with us. and so. That's why I don't think I don't think a golf sponsorship or stadium sponsorship in and of itself is enough. Here in, in Philly, we've got the Wells Fargo Center. I'm not gonna go be a customer of Wells Fargo because they, you know, sponsor the stadium where the where the 76ers play. But if I see great content on, you know, why should I or when should I refinance my mortgage, also from Wells Fargo and think, oh yeah, that's I know them, you know, because it's I think it's the secondary point and and a positive impression that really starts to drive that point home. So that's my my guidance is think of all the touch points and think of how you can most authentically engage your audience across those different touch points. And then we're getting better and better at attributing where the real value comes in. Yeah,
1: attributions in an, another entirely separate podcast potentially. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. So when you
1: think about, your your point at the very beginning about saying, you know, this was always happening. We just maybe weren't, it wasn't happening as quickly or we weren't quite as ready. And then we applied the heat and pressure of the last 18 months. What happens over the course of the next 18 months?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think we're, you know, we, you've heard the term, the new normal. I mean, I don't, I'm not prescient enough to know what the new normal is, but I, I mean, I don't think we're going backwards completely. I think a lot of, you know, the great resignation as they're calling it, is largely happening because people said, you know what, it, I can be more efficient at home and I don't need to listen to my jerky boss telling me what to do when I know better, <laughs> you know, that like there's a whole new way of work that's going to happen. And I think that people are going to be surprised at how much of it sticks aside from education, you know, where I think we are, you know, we do need to be in school and, and we all want that experience for, you know, for the folks in education. Um, I think, You know, largely the features and the functions of what we've been forced to to take on in the last year and a half are really going to stick around. You know, at a greater rate than people realize. So that's why I said the acceleration is not going to it's not going to slow down and then reverse. It might slow down to the point where I think companies are able to more ably implement the processes and the policies and the human element of the digital transformations that we've all been forced through. But we're not going to go backwards.
1: So you're a, you're a fairly prolific writer. What's the next book on your agenda?
0: I think that the big conclusion from my last book is that I don't know that I want to write another book. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it it followed a journey. So the first book, if I'm allowed to plug it just briefly, it it was a book on, it was a book on the ROI of content, uh, you know, from a, like an educational perspective. So stop promoting and start helping your audience by creating content. And that, that can really drive ROI and it was you know there was a lot of math and and i thought what the what my market was looking for was the proof and i provided the proof in the book and and i was shocked at how few people were moved by it and you know cuz i'm like wait you said you wanted proof that this works and here's the proof and they said yeah but that's not really the problem the real problem i found was culture and, you know, I sort of mentioned it, this culture of, you know, ego-driven, um, you know, leaders just telling their team what to do. It's the, the great Steve Jobs quote was, um, you know, we don't hire smart people and tell them what to do. We hire smart people so they can tell us what we should be doing. And so that was what, you know, that sort of went into the impetus behind mean people suck. It's why we do stuff that doesn't work because, you know, we, we're still following an outdated leadership model. So, yeah, I don't know what the next question is. So maybe maybe you can help me figure it out. But uh, uh, when it hits me, uh, that'll be the inspiration to write the next one.
1: There you go. (laughs) So I typically like to end with one that's a little bit more personal. When you're there in Philly and at the end of a hard day and you want to put on a little music, what do you like to listen to?
0: So I have a Spotify playlist. That I love. It's beach vibes. That's that's my jam. It's uh, it's basically like Jack Johnson, reggae, you know, I'm in the sun and I'm enjoying life and having a drink and, and, you know, napping on the hammock. I bet that's especially important, January in Philadelphia. Yeah, exactly. Well, very cool. Michael, I've really
1: enjoyed the time with you today. It's a lot of amazing insights and I hope you do write another book.
0: Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it.
1: There's a few key takeaways that come from our conversation with Mike. First, you get what you give. He believes that companies that are the most successful in business are those that place a strong emphasis on giving back, forming authentic relationships and truly helping clients and customers. Content marketing is just one way to do this. Second, as a result of the pandemic, brands have been forced to rethink the way that they create engaging one-on-one experiences for customers. Companies like Best Buy have taken the opportunity to expand their reach and connect with even more people through visual, digital experiences that recreate in-person experiences using technology. Third, it was great to hear him talk about how you can let yourself be imperfect online. People have become extremely sensitive to fake or inauthentic behavior, and it's why he advises marketers to just let yourself, and your content, be imperfect. Be authentic, even if that means a mistake or two. Show up as your true self. That is how you can connect with people on a real human level. Fourth, we need to look at the full customer journey. It begins well before your consumers know your company exists. Brands tend to forget that that first step is identifying a problem that needs solving, not finding a company that can help them work through the solution. This is why focusing on the early stage of the buyer's journey and creating personalized content from this perspective is crucial, but don't forget to focus on retention and pay attention to the customers that are already in the funnel. Michael referred to that as the lost child of marketing objectives and he emphasized the importance of understanding the needs and wants of customers, even post sale. And then fifth, the goal of personalized content is a deepened relationship and level of trust with your audience. As marketers, We can achieve this not just by learning more about our customers, but by learning more about what they love and what they care about. We need to be targeting people based upon the things that make them human. Thanks for listening to Transform It Forward, the podcast that gives you an inside look into some of the world's most effective transformation processes. If you like this episode, please be sure to give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Transform It Forward is brought to you by Axway, who believes that in order to create the most value for customers, partners, and employees, you need to open everything by securely integrating and moving data across a complex world of old and new technologies.